Good morning, Bread of Life Church. It's a privilege to be with you this morning talking about the book of Jonah. You know, every great storyteller you know, has a point in the story where the audience is just on pins and needles, where it comes to the edge of the cliff and we're all holding our breath and wondering what's going to happen next. And the book of Jonah has that moment, and that moment comes right here in Jonah chapter 3. And as we wrestle with this moment in the story where the entire story sort of comes to a head and we all hold our breaths, I want to suggest you that this chapter teaches us three crucial things about ourselves, about the nature of God's kingdom, and about the nature of God himself. And the first thing we see as we wrestle with this text is that the Lord confronts rebellion, injustice, and sin and calls his people to do the same. The Lord confronts rebellion, injustice, and sin and calls his people to do the same. For two whole chapters, we've been waiting for the prophet to get to Nineveh with the message that God would give him. And here in chapter 3, he finally arrives. And here's the message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. How's that for short and sweet and to the point? It's the shortest, possibly worst missionary story sermon ever. 40 more days and the judgment's coming. That's all Nineveh gets. And this judgment that God is announcing on Nineveh, we know, is a judgment on Nineveh's violence and oppression and injustice. We know that in part because that's what Nineveh is condemned for elsewhere in the Bible. The book of Nahum calls Nineveh a city of crime, utterly treacherous, full of violence, where killing never stops. But we also know that Nineveh is is, is being challenged and, and judgment is coming on Nineveh for its oppression and violence because of the way the king himself responds in this very chapter. You see, when the word that, ne- that Jonah is preaching, that in 40 days Nineveh is going to be overthrown, arrives at the king, he doesn't have to ask, well, what are the charges? What's this God mad about? Why are we facing this judgment? No, he immediately hears judgments are coming and he knows why it's coming and he knows that they deserve it. That's why he gets off his throne and calls for every single person to fast and repent and pray and to turn from their evil ways and the violence that is in their hands. Because the king knows when judgment is proclaimed that that judgment is on the systems and culture and individual violence and oppression that has come to characterize all of life in this city. If we dig into this language of the violence that is in the Ninevites' hands, you know, that same language of violence is the language that the Bible uses to describe uh, the days of the flood, when violence was so filled the earth that the Lord felt that he had to wash away all of humanity and start afresh with Noah because of the way that violence had so corrupted his people. This language of violence is used for the malicious witness in the law, the the person who shows up at court to convict the innocent. That's violence in the law. This same language of violence is used in the Psalms to describe a city filled with iniquity, trouble, oppression, and fraud, which never depart from its marketplace. So this language of violence not only speaks of physical violence, uh, but also and legal violence, but also of economic oppression and injustice. And it is this kind of holistic culture and system of violence and injustice and oppression, a system in which every Ninevite apparently has participated, that 
elicits God's judgment. Now, the story of Jonah is so dominated by forgiveness that it's important that we not miss, none of us near miss here. God sends Jonah to threaten Nineveh with destruction because of their widespread injustice and violence. And that raises the question for us, what's the big deal about injustice? What's the big deal about oppression? Why is God willing to overthrow this great city for their sin of oppression and injustice? And the Bible gives us a number of answers. I mean, Psalm 11.5 says that part of the answer is that the Lord's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Lord has hatred in his heart for oppression and injustice. And the reason that God hates injustice is because, as Psalm 89 tells us, justice is the very foundation of his throne. That God's reign and rule is characterized by justice and righteousness. And so God hates injustice and unrighteousness because they're the very opposite of his own rule and reign, indeed his own character. So God brings judgment on injustice because he hates it, because he himself is a king who rules with justice and righteousness. But also, God brings judgment on our injustice and unrighteousness because he has put us on this earth to be people who do justice and righteousness. And that's why the prophet Micah, God tells us, he's told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Scripture makes it clear that God is a God who loves justice, but he's also called us to be a people who love and do justice, who love and make peace, who seek the good of our neighbor. And here, when God sees a city characterized by injustice and oppression and violence, he sends his prophet to confront it and to threaten them with the judgment that God brings on unrepentant injustice, oppression, violence, and sin. These verses show us pretty much the only verses where we see Jonah getting it right. Jonah gets it right that God hates injustice, oppression, and sin, and he calls his people to confront it. So the first thing we see is that God confronts injustice and oppression, and he calls us to do the same. But secondly, the story shows us that God's confrontation with injustice is an invitation to repentance. The Lord's confrontation calls us to repentance. Jonah gives us this you know, one-sentence sermon, yet 40 days, and then I shall be overthrown. And then something happens that has never happened to me in my years of preaching, and I bet it's never happened for any preacher you've ever heard. Everybody, from the least to the greatest, immediately responds. In fact, it's almost comical. The text tells us it's a three-day trip to get all the way through Nineveh. But at the end of day one, not only is the king repenting in response to Jonah's once in his sermon. Not only is the every person in Nineveh from the least to the greatest repenting, but even the animals, the flocks and herds are in sackcloth and ashes, and everyone is fasting and praying and turning from their wicked ways. And the book of Jonah is giving us a depiction of the appropriate response when we're confronted by God because of our participation and injustice and violence. 
The story is showing us the correct response to God's confrontation with our injustice and our unrighteousness. And that correct response is repentance. The Lord's confrontation calls us to repentance. What kind of repentance? Well, the Ninevites give us something of a model. Their repentance includes both public acknowledgement. When they're confronted with their violence and oppression, they publicly recognize it. All from the least and the greatest, put on sackcloth and ashes. And what that's about is really a, a, a holistic recognition that we have done wrong, that we've been in the wrong, that we are guilty as charged. So repentance includes a recognition and an acknowledgement of the wrong that's been done, but it also includes turning from that wickedness. See, in the Old Testament and really across Scripture, the heart of repentance is not simply naming our sin. It's not even grieving our sin, although those, those are both aspects of repentance. Now, the heart of repentance in Scripture is a turning from our wicked way and towards God's way of righteousness. And so the Ninevites don't just put on a show. They don't just fast and pray, but they turn from their evil ways and they turn from the violence and oppression that's in their hands. The Ninevites don't embrace some kind of cheap grace, easy believism, shed a few tears, pray a prayer, and move on with your life. You know, the repentance that we see in the Ninevites is a turning, a whole life turning, a reorientation away from the injustice, oppression, and sin that has characterized their lives, and a turning towards a new way of life, characterized by justice where there was injustice, and peace where there was violence, and neighbor love where before there was only coveting, and injustice, and theft, and sin, and greed. So we see in the text that God confronts injustice and oppression and sin, and then that confrontation elicits and requires the kind of repentance that includes acknowledging our sin, grieving it, and turning from it. And yet here in verse 9, we come to the cliffhanger. We come to the point where the whole story holds its breath because even after all of this, even after the king says, hey, everybody, we know what we've done. Put down the violence in your hands. The best that he can say is this in verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his anger. Don't miss this moment in the story. You see, the king knows that they've done some stuff. The king knows that they've done wrong. And the king knows that they must repent of the evil that they've done. Whatever uh, this Ninevite king knew about God, and we should assume he didn't know very much, being a worshiper of false gods, being someone who didn't know Yahweh, Israel's God, yet he knows this much, that they'd done wrong, and when you do wrong, you have to repent. But the story holds its breath here at this moment because then we're asking ourselves, will it be enough? See, Nineveh has been told 40 more days and the city's been overthrown. Jonah's message doesn't seem to allow Nineveh any out. There doesn't seem to be any invitation for mercy or grace in Jonah's initial sermon. And so all the king knows 
is that all that we can do is cast ourselves on the mercy of God and maybe, just maybe, he will turn and forgive. And so the third thing this story shows us is that the just God delights to forgive even the most unjust. What kind of God is this that the Ninevites are dealing with? A God who demands justice, but a God who delights to forgive even the most unjust, if they will but turn from their wicked ways. God sees their repentance, and he relents from the judgment that he had planned for them. So that's our story this morning. We encounter a God who confronts injustice and oppression and violence. A God who demands repentance in the face of injustice and oppression and violence. And yet a God who delights to forgive even the most unjust, even the most violent, even the oppressor, if they will indeed repent. What does this story mean for us today? What does this word say to us today? Well, I think it, it comes down to simply two pieces of application. First, as God's people, we're called to confront the injustice and violence of our world wherever we find it, including in our own lives. We're called to be people who go out and look for the oppression and injustice and violence of our world and to confront it wherever we find it, even when we find it in our own hearts and lives. You see, we still encounter Nineveh-like injustice in our world. We live in a world characterized by violence and oppression and sin in our marketplaces and in our legal systems and in our families and in our homes and in our cities and in our hearts. Just think about when you look at the world, where are the places where you're seeing injustice and oppression and sin? In the lives of millions of the unborn killed through abortion, in rampant bullying in school, in hatred and racism unleashed on immigrants and refugees, on the abuse of women in marriages and the modern-day slavery of sex trafficking, in the racial disparities of our marketplaces, in the violence of mass incarceration, in workplace discrimination, in segregated churches, where, when you look out at the world, we have, if we have eyes to see, we can see injustice and oppression and violence marring all sorts of aspects of our society. And if we're honest, brothers and sisters, we can see places where the way that we've treated our neighbors, where we've chosen to live, who we've chosen to associate with and how, the way that we've participated in our political life, that we are so often ourselves a part of the injustice, oppressive, violent problem. And so chapter 3 comes at us as a warning, as a warning to repent, to turn from 
the ways that we have participated in injustice and to confront the injustice we see in the world around us. The confrontation that we need with injustice in the world and the confrontation that we need in our own lives is a challenge to turn from injustice and oppression and sin and to turn towards a way of life committed to justice and peace and flourishing and joy and hope. This commitment to confront injustice and sin and oppression in our own hearts and communities and wherever we see it in the world is not some secondary aspect of our faith. It's not some liberal agenda. It is at the heart of who we are as God's people. We are a people called to do justice and to love mercy. And that requires us to repent of where we failed and to confront the injustice and oppression of the world around us. But second, second, and especially as we seek that justice in our own lives and to confront the injustice of our world and to seek justice in the world, second, this chapter forces us to remember that even as we confront the injustice of our world, to proclaim that we worship a God whose everlasting love makes room for even the worst of sinners. I think of the Israelites hearing about the king of Nineveh, who was one of their worst enemies, who was the head of an oppressive empire, who had wreaked havoc on the Israelite people. I can imagine them reading this story and hearing that Jonah had said, there's going to be judgment, and the king saying, let's repent, maybe God will relent. And I can hear the Israelites saying, I'm not so sure, not so fast. I'm not sure that you haven't passed the point of no return, Ninevites. I can imagine Jonah and the Israelites saying, there's some people who have gone too far. There are some sins that are too heinous, and God's mercy will not reach to that point. And the story comes like a hammer and says, God delights to love and forgive the people that we think are beyond hope. And so the second thing that Jonah confronts us with is the question, who are we treating in our minds and in our lives as beyond the hope of God's redeeming love? Who are we treating as people beyond hope of repentance and restoration because usually, usually when you and I get excited about justice, when we get excited about confronting oppression and violence, what we do is we divide the world up into the good guys and the bad guys. And we think some of the bad guys are just beyond hope. But as Leslie Allen puts it in his commentary on Jonah, this chapter shows us that justice is better served by reformed characters than by corpses, and God invites all to hear the warning and to repent and experience the Lord's steadfast love and mercy and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, go back to those places of oppression and injustice and sin that you just a moment ago were thinking, yes, that's where God is calling his church. There are people on the other side of those justice issues that you and I find it so easy to write off. 
And yet Jonah chapter 3 calls us to say, who needs to hear not only God calls you to turn from your wicked ways, but who also needs to hear God invites you to experience his world-shattering forgiveness and love. Jonah chapter 3 calls us to confront injustice and oppression, yes. But it calls us to confront injustice and oppression by inviting the worst of sinners to experience the mercy and forgiveness of our God. Just a few days ago, our country uh, began mourning the passing of John Lewis, a U.S. congressman, long-term U.S. congressman. In 1961, uh, Congressman Lewis was a young seminary student, young African-American seminary student, who was involved in nonviolent protests against segregation. And so they one of the things they were doing was nonviolently entering whites-only spaces. And, and one, in the course of nonviolent direct action, he entered such a whites-only space and was attacked. And a mob beat Congressman Lewis until he blacked out. Of course, after the Civil Rights Movement, as we know, uh, he became a congressman. Um, he continued to serve for many, many years. But in 2009, 48 years later, after Congressman Lewis was beaten into unconsciousness, a man showed up in his office, a man named Elwin Wilson. And Elwin Wilson acknowledged to Lewis that he had been one of those guys who had beaten him unconscious on that day back in 1961. And in Congressman Lewis's office, Elwin Wilson repented of the white supremacist racism that had motivated him and asked for Lewis's forgiveness. And in that office, Lewis offered it. He offered that forgiveness. He hugged the man who had been his oppressor and who had committed this heinous act of violence against him. And he said, I forgive you. Later on in an interview, Lewis explained that what had happened between the two of them testified to the power of love the power of grace. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel is not just that God is confronting the violence and injustice that ruins our world. The good news of the gospel is that God in Jesus is offering forgiveness for we and anyone else who's been involved with the violence and oppression and sin of our world. That's the good news of the gospel. That we cracked open by God's love, empowered by God's love, may go out into the world and not just confront the injustice we find there, but announce the good news that the most unjust people of our world, beginning with us, can experience God's endless, bountiful love and forgiveness. That's the message that our world is dying to hear today. Let's go out and announce it with our words, with our deeds, with our lives, for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbor. Amen.